Hey, it's Kathy with Rocky Retirement. And as promised, today's Friday, and so you'll be getting to listen to Henry Shapiro's Retired Excited. I know you're just going to love this as much as I do. And don't forget, you can still listen to Rock Your Retirement, where I'm the host, and those shows are released on Mondays. Welcome to the Retired Excited Podcast. Retired Excited, the show where we give retired and want-to-be-retired folk a look at how great retired life can be. Here we talk to men and women who are happily retired and loving their life. We explore the techniques, activities, beliefs, and excitement of these happy retirees and examine how every Tom, Dick, and Mary can benefit from their experience. Together, we will delve into what retired happiness really looks like and how anyone can achieve it. Here is your host, Henry Shapiro. Hey folks, Henry here at Retired Excited, the show providing inspiration for people who are nearly retired, newly retired, or say they're never going to retire. If you're nearing retirement and fearful of what lies ahead, you don't need to be. If you're already retired and wondering how to fill your days, then this show is exactly for you. Here we talk to retired people doing things that make them happy. Things from stamp collecting to cruising, from dancing to touring the world on a motorbike. There's an exciting stage of life to be enjoyed after full-time work and it's got nothing to do with your financial situation or social position. We talk to everyday retired people who are living the life they want and we talk to a few professionals to get expert advice. And I chip in with some of my own experiences. All right, welcome everybody to Retired Excited. This is episode 16. Retired Excited, where we provide inspiration for an excellent retirement. Except for this episode. This one's going to be a little bit different. I'm interviewing a man who, although he's retired, we don't talk about his retirement. We talk about what he's been doing in life. I went to see him to talk about retirement, but got really wrapped up in all the interesting, interesting things he'd been doing. His name's Rob Anderson, and for 50 years, he's been a sailor. Getting his master's certificate, or what seems to me to be a really young age of 28. I want to say at the start that there's a couple of things. I'm really sorry about the echo. I'm sorry about the echo on the soundtrack. He says we were in his... When I asked him where we were, he says that we are in the stables uh, below his house, but we're actually in a little room adjacent to the stables, and it's a small room with very hard services, and there's nothing I could do about the echoes. It's still very uh, legible. Is that the word for audio? Anyhow, it's still easy to understand. When you think sea captain... I think you and I would automatically think of people who are driving ocean liners. But Rob starts out by telling us, or one of the things Rob tells us, is about all the, the various things that sea captains do. And they might be uh, captains of tugs, cruise liners, pilot boats, all sorts of uh, things, harbour masters. There's a whole range. And Rob has, in fact, done a whole bunch of those things. This interview is full of anecdotes. He completely distracted me from where I had meant to go, but it's a fantastic interview. You'll hear as we're going along that 
most of the time I'm, I can hardly speak. I've cracked up so much. Anyhow, as always, I greet him and ask him to explain where it is that we are. Good day, Rob. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Now, where are we? Well, we're in the wilds of Nanogu North, um, sitting in a horse stable down the hill from my house. He's making it sound really rough, folks, but it's a gorgeous property. We're up on a hill, got a, a brilliant view out over the, over the hills. There's that water I can see. Yeah, it's Western Port Bay, yeah. That, looking out over Western Port Bay, unbelievable. And as you walk around the property, there's lots of interesting things. There are brand new tractor. Ah, uh, tractor is. There's a tractor. Racing cars, motorbikes, horse gear, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. You're involved in lots of stuff, Rob. Eclectic taste. Eclectic. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I really want to talk to you about is what you've been doing for the last, how many years you've been doing this? More than I care to be. 50 years or more, yeah. 50 years. 50 years he's been on the water, folks. Now, just very quickly, we won't dwell on these, but started out as, what did you start out as? Went to see, went to see as a schoolboy at 15, as a deck boy on a cargo ship, on a British flag cargo ship. Yep. And then... Um, um, and then got my license, all my different licenses, and I was lucky enough to have my captain's, my master master's certificate at the age of 28, which is a, an unlimited master's ticket. So at the age of what 28... Did, what does a master's ticket let you do? Master one is unlimited anywhere in the world, any sort of ship. Any so size. it could be a cruise liner? Could be anything, yeah. Anything oh, at 28 years old, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then I was lucky enough, I got a captain's job straight after, so I wasn't... The youngest captain, or the first one, but you know, I was a pretty young, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I was the captain of a British flag uh, ship, and the captain's always called the old man, and I was the youngest <laughs> guy on the ship. And then I was lucky to pretty much keep that, keep in that slot until now, and I'm 67, so that's something like but you, 50. No, you haven't been on that sort of ship or boat. No, no, t- Am I allowed to call this a ship or a boat? A ship. A ship? Yeah, yeah, I don't like boats so much, no. No. Okay. We've had a few boats, but no, no, ships. What, uh, <laughs> I don't just, know. Just for the listeners, what, tell us what the difference Perhaps is. Perhaps it is that a ship can carry a boat and not vice versa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good definition. Now, you said you keep doing that, but you haven't. You've done all sorts of different things within the nautical community. True, yes. I, I, I started off in general cargo ships and then container ships as an officer, and then passenger ships. I had five years on passenger ships as an officer, not a captain. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I was in the offshore oil industry, which I really enjoyed. Um, that was all around the world, towing oil rigs and servicing them and um, things like that. I actually had two oil rigs sink on me while I was towing them. Which <laughs> but not your <laughs> fault. Not no, your no, fault. No, no, <laughs> no. And, um, and then I got a bit restless with that and I thought I'd like to, my children were young, I thought I'd like to be a Port Phillip sea pilot piloting yep. the ships. So I joined another company, Brambles, which became Toll, and I drove the cargo ships across uh, Bass Strait and the Tasman in and out of Melbourne to get the licences to then yes. be approved as a pilot. Mm-hmm. I was approved as a pilot and didn't like the people very much. And at the same time, <laughs> an opportunity came to be a Torres Strait Barrier Reef marine pilot. Yes. So I thought that was better. And um, So you lived up there? Well, I had another house up there. I had an aeroplane. I used to fly back and forth. And then, um, so I did that for, I did that for five years with the pilotage companies. And then myself and two other pilots got out and started our own pilotage business. That's is another that, story. Is that- 
It's that the term for a pilotage business. Yeah, pilotage That's, business. Yeah, okay. quite, yeah, so. quite a hard thing to take on. You know, the big players, and yes, and then it was all done by helicopters. So we had to. Uh, I'm getting away from myself. That's all right. Yeah. So then, then I did that for a, that. That partnership actually soured, and then I got out, and I came back, and I uh, was then um, I, I was a chicken training pilot. So I had a basic teaching qualification. Mm-hmm. I went to a maritime college just sticky being around and they grabbed me because I had good credentials. So mm-hmm. I started to teach occasionally while teaching at the college at Lake's Entrance. The How old are you at this stage? This is well, this about 10 years ago. Okay, yes. The harbour master um, decided to leave. Mm-hmm. So then I became the harbour master for Gippsland Ports, which is a big area from Malakoot all the way to Western Port Bay, a huge area, mm-hmm. biggest waterway in Australia, the Gippsland Lakes. Yeah. That was a, it was an interest. I love the area, still do, but it was a bureaucratic paper <laughs> nightmare, you know. Yes. So I, I left that and then I had a go at my own business for quite a few years, delivering ships in high piracy areas, mm-hmm. picking up ships from shipyards, not always, but mainly in Cochin, there's a very big shipyard in Cochin, delivering them to the west coast of Africa, past the Horn of Africa where the pirates are, and then down into the west coast of Africa. And um, unfortunately, they got on top of the piracy and that... Unfortunately. Yeah, that wasn't good for my business. So then I um, I gravitated back into the offshore oil industry, got myself another master's ticket, which is a Norwegian master's ticket. Yes. Which, funnily enough, has to be approved by the king, the king of Norway, <laughs> actually. It's very difficult. So you're on, are you, you're on speaking terms with the king? <laughs> yeah, that's me. I had to actually, he endorses it. They, they're very sensitive about their flag and who's okay. the captain of their ship. That's good. So, that's really yeah, good. There's, there's, there's a few around, but it's a hard one to get. So now I was a captain of Norwegian subsea engineering ships for the past five years, I guess. I don't know. I haven't really added up, but um, doing subsea robotics and things like that, deep water, deep water robotics. And now uh, um, um, the industry's taken a little bit of a dive, um, <laughs> and the industry is really fickle. Yes. And um, and uh, interestingly, they said to me, the, it's a Norwegian government policy that there cannot be a Norwegian ship captain out of work at the expense of an international, which I am. So they said, look, we're very sorry, but we can't employ you when we have a Norwegian captain sitting on the beach. So, you know, I left. and um, I wish Australia did the same thing. Yes, I do too. Mm -hmm. So then I got a job on a Norwegian ship, a Norwegian company ship, but it was registered in Cyprus. That's the expat ship I showed you. So I drove that for a few years and now I'm sitting around and um, and I I had the misfortune to fall down the ladder, the stairs, in heavy weather and hurt my knee. So um, I just temporarily... Hung up at the moment, right? But I, I'm sort of figuring that maybe in '67 I've had a good run. Maybe it's the writing's enough. Enough, yeah. yeah. So that's All a right, brief there's, history. There's a, f- a few of those I absolutely want to come back on. So let's go back to earlier in life when you're on passenger yes, ships. Yes. What was the good thing about oh, being an officer? Oh, well, the, about being on passenger ships. The social life was fantastic. <laughs> the, actually, <laughs> you might be interested though that passenger ships don't pay very well. The, the worst paying ships to work on are passenger ships. Nearly every, nearly every other sort of ship pays more than a passenger ship. Gracious me! But you get you have a pretty good lifestyle. <laughs> of course, being single. Great, give me an example. I had a good head of hair then, and I probably wasn't <laughs> quite so fat. Then I used to, as a fellow motorcyclist, I, I used to take my motorcycle on the ship with me. So at any of the ports, I'd always have a, somebody on the back, and off I'd blast. So it was a good lifestyle. 
Now, when you say somebody on the back, another crew member, or did no, you? No, uh, uh, one of the passengers. Well, it could have been a crew member because there's a lot of girls work on the ship as well. So it was a good lifestyle, but it had to come to an end. I was having too much of a good time. Too much fun. Yes, and then we took the ship to the breakers. They finished P and O ships, and we ran them up on the beach in, in Taiwan, and they set fire to them to burn the wood out and chop them up for scrap. What? 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 So that was the end of. Yeah, there's not much money in in the internal fittings of a ship, so. Those ships, Cathay Chitral, Chitral we took to Hong Kong, all the last passengers got off and all the tables were still laid and the linen and the, most of the stuff was still there. They took the pianos off and things like that. Then a run crew, we took it to Taiwan, to the uh, east coast of Taiwan, a place called Walin, and then drove it up on the beach like they do in India now. And then they um, leave it with the engine running so it pushes itself further up each tide. And then as we were getting off, they set the incendiary bombs around the ship and set fire to it. Beautiful ship, teak railing and, you know, beautiful ship. But they burn all the combustibles out of it to get to the steel, which they recycle. So this, yeah, That's what they ship. do with dead ships. They, they yeah, burn yeah. There's no. That's amazing. It's not worth removing the fittings and stuff, yeah. That's another story, yeah. <laughs> and then I went to container ships, which I really enjoyed for a while because they were very fast very modern ships, and I was on the... Well, far, uh, is a container faster than a passenger ship? Generally speaking, yes. Okay. Although my, nowadays, I mean, there's some pretty fast ships around. Yes. But in those days, I mean, most of the ships are, were travelling around 15, 16 knots is considered a reasonable speed. Mm-hmm. Container ships were doing 28 knots, and that was very fast. Yeah, that is fast. So yes. we used to do Australia-Japan. We had the fastest trip ever. We, we went from Brisbane to Japan in six days. Which is flying along in a big container ship. And when you say, is this just a matter of turn up the wick, or is it, is it um, when you say we did it fast, your company told you to do it yes. fast? How did this happen? Well, then what happened very shortly after that, I, I, I'm really struggling with the years, but that would have been in the late 70s, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Then the fuel prices started to really kick in. Mm-hmm. And of course, these things gobble up the fuel, so they wound them all back. In fact, there were ships running around at that time. Not my ship, but the ships around that time that were burning 600 tons of fuel a day. 600 tons yeah, of fuel of a day. Yeah. You imagine the cost. <laughs> so the accountants got involved and the ship slowed down, you know, and, and the industry changed. So when you look at it, is it, I don't know how to even put this question, do you use more fuel going slow for longer or fast for shorter? No, no, the the, the ships are, they vary. A big, a big heavy capacity bulk carrier mm-hmm. will make its money by the volume of stuff it takes, so it doesn't have to go fast. So it can carry 300,000 tonne of product at 15 knots for 55 days. It's a, an economical way of moving something. But a ferry or a passenger ship will move faster and they just... Levy the passengers for the fuel, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Would it not be quicker to, instead of taking 55 days to get there in 40 days and get another cargo? The the ships are, you're right, but the ships are designed at a hull speed, so the the whole thing is thought out beforehand, so they have an economical speed. Interestingly, on the ships that I've been driving recently, we have multiple engines. If we run on one engine, we'll do 12, 13 knots, if we run on two engines, we'll do 15 knots. So you double the horsepower and double the fuel consumption for three more miles per hour. If you want to. So it's yes, double yes. that up. Yeah. Mm. 
Has there ever been any incidents when you've been on these passenger ships or...? More passenger ships are mainly, unfortunately, mainly people dying. Yeah, <laughs> That's an incident. Uh, on, yeah. the, on, the, on the modern cruise ships where they're a younger clientele, of course, it's not so common, but traditionally the passenger ships were mainly older people, retirees mm. and older people. And they die like flies. You know, they really <laughs> oh, do. And, um, this is not to do with the food, is it? No, 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 no. And we would generally, the captain and the, and the person, they'd convince them to bury them at sea because it's yeah. so economical. And if you've got a doctor on board, he can write a death certificate. Yeah. I can't write one as a captain. Um, but on the passage, if you carry a doctor, if you can, if you can do the death certificate and then convince the people to do the burial at sea, it's only... A, few thousand dollars compared to ten thousand dollars to freight a body home you know? tell me about a burial let's say how does that work well with the uh the, the prepare the body uh, usually in a canvas shroud like a large bag with some weights in it and then it we have a, a, a board or a kind of a plank arrangement on the on the rail mm. and the, the 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 body in the bag is under a flag which is pinned at one end Yes, we get down there at sunrise to slow the ship or stop the ship totally, which is a big deal to stop a big ship. The captain will read a service and then he'll give the nod, the wink to the officers standing at the end. He lifts the board up and the body shoots out from under the flag, splashing the sea, and we're off. Do, do the passengers know this is going on? They, they make an announcement, yeah, okay. but we do it at a discreet place. Now, I can tell you, I, I mean, I can tell you a very funny story because. We had quite a few people die these this particular voyage, and I was a second mate. I was on the twelve to four watch, midnight till four, and we we had to stay up until sunrise to do this, and we get a bit grumpy because it happened quite a few nights. So we said to the mate, "Look, we're sick of this. How about the engineer officers do it? Because they come out of the engine room, their officers." And he said, "Good idea." So these two engineers came out. They were one said to the other, "Have you ever done this before?" He said, "Nah, it's pretty easy." He said, "If those." Those deadheads could do it. We could do it. We're engineers. He said, how heavy is it? I don't know. He said, let's go down and just have a look. So they went down. And he said, grab a side. Just how heavy is it? And lift it up. And the body shot out. <laughs> but it was, it was two hours before sunrise. So they, being good engineers, they went and had a beer at six or four o'clock in the morning and then got the mate up and said, oh, we've had an accident. We've tipped the body in the drink a bit early. And there was a big ruckus. And they I made up another one. They made up another one out of... We got the carpenter and the butcher and made up another body which was shot over the side with a rumble of chain and engine room spare parts. Because I imagine all the relatives are there. (laughs) (laughs) True story. (laughs) Now, you tell me when we were off here, you said that if there's no doctor, the captain looks after medical stuff. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, it's something that I'm always surprised that people don't realise, but there are a lot more ships in the world than there are uh, cargo ships in the world than there are passenger ships. Yes. Passenger ships and some working ships have the luxury of a doctor and a paramedic. I have, the last couple of ships I've been on, I had a paramedic. Mm-hmm. If you have, I think if you have over 12 people, I can't remember the number. So a foreign-going ship's master, master class one, part of his training is he has to go and do a special medical course and you have to renew it, refresh it every five years. And in my case, I went to go to several different hospitals, go to the big hospitals in Melbourne in the casualty uh, section and you do a 10-day course. Two of those days you spend in the morgue and some long-suffering doctor will 
take you around and open up a few things. Because we have to do very, have to be prepared to do something like an appendectomy or, um, you know, so there's no one else to do it. Tell me typically, or not typically, what's the most, most, wor- most gender, worst? Gender reassignment. Oh, you've done no, that. No, I no, 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 mainly suturing, mainly just wounds. And, yeah. and I haven't, um, I've come very close to having to open a few people up but managed to get out of that. But, um, Theoretically, we have a, a wonderful book with patterns and dotted lines and things like that. You have uh, SATCOM, you can, someone will talk you through it. And um, I've, had, I've so, done a lot of stitching. Can I tell you a quick story? Please. I, was trying to, um, I saw the guys recently. We, we were on an ice-breaking uh, anchor handler working out of in the Great Australian Bight. And... Um, we got in totally alcohol-free on the ships, and when we got into port, we thought we'd rush up the pub. Hang on. Uh, we're talking sailors and alcohol-free ships in the one breath. alcohol-free for years. Okay. Ever right. since Exxon, was not a drop on ships. Okay. So. And the cray fisherman, watchman guy, lent us his little pickup truck in, truck in Portland, and we all piled into this. And I stood on the back with an engineer hanging on to the cab. I was very careful. I'm well aware of how dangerous this could be. We roared up the road... And the engineer next to me, he got a bit excited. He banged on the roof. Hey, you know, we're off. And the guy driving, the mate, he thought something was wrong. So he hit the brakes. And Magnus took off like a Superman over the bonnet, landed on the road on his head and left a bit of meat there. And oh, so we put him on a park bench and there was blood streaming out. And I thinking, well, that's bugger that. We're never going to get to the pub. And the chief mate was a wonderful guy. Dave said, oh, I've fixed worse than that. He said, well, race back to the ship. We had a little hospital. He said, I'll bang a few stitches in. He said, only take a sec. We'll clean up. We're back. We'll be back in time for the pub. So we get back to the ship. Dave's got the gloves on. He's ripped open all the suture packs and, and he's crisscrossing them over Magnus's head. And Magnus said, Dave, he said, I'm starting to go a bit bald on the back there. He said, can you tighten it up a bit there for me, please? And Dave said, no problem. <laughs> he said to me, he said, Rob, you pull those out. So this, Dave's got... Six sutures. He's got three each side, does he? And he said to me, "Well, you pull those three, and I'll pull these three, and we'll tighten her up a bit." So we heave ho. We give him a tug. Another guy sitting there said, "Geez," he said, "You've got to stop." He said, "His eyebrows are moving up his head." And so we, <laughs> he had this kind of startled look on his face. <laughs> and I still laughed out that his ears were slowly migrating up. He would end up looking like Mickey Mouse. So we backed him off a tad. Tied him in a knot and we stuck a hat on. <laughs> and then we, we made it to the pub and um, and there was a big bounce at the door. He said, oh, you guys, he said, you're cutting a bit fine, you know. And we said, no, we're right. And, and then he looked at Magnus. He said, what's the matter with him? He said, is he pissed? And we said, no, no. He said, well, look at him. Magnus was all, what? And he said, he's got a, he said, tell him to take his hat off. Well, that was the end of that because it looked like a horror movie. You know? But uh, yeah, so there's always a story, isn't there? Always a story. But I have to assure you, Henry, you couldn't invent a story like that. <laughs> we get worse, and I won't go into this one, but another accident which is worth just we're in the Southern Ocean, towing a big oil rig, I forget, South Africa to somewhere, I don't know. The quickest way around the world is around the bottom. You know, you, yeah. you go down the south, you run along the edge of the ice, mm-hmm. pop back up. Shorter. Mm. That's why all the yachtsmen get into trouble down there, you know. And we're in heavy weather, and the engineer, chief engineer, kind of said, "Oh, the engine, one of the engineers had a nasty accident." What? I, I, 
what had happened, the engineer was standing at his wash basin having a shave with no clothes on, <laughs> with his doodle hanging out, and he's, the ship's bumped and he's fallen against the drawer and jammed the old fella in the drawer. <laughs> we took three stout engineers, a mighty job to get the drawer open. And then, oh, no. Of course, this thing is flat in the middle. So my medical skills have been drawn upon for some very strange thing. <laughs> oh, you're a worry. <laughs> um, moving on right along. Yeah, we better, now, yeah. You, you said that, not you personally, but some oil rigs had sunk. Now, yeah. How do you sink an oil rig? That, oh, no, well, how do you float an oil rig for a start? Yeah, no, I spent a lot of time doing ocean towage for a P&O company, an Australian-based company, doing and towing very, very big oil rigs and ships. Um, just uh, Some people might remember a big passive ship we had in Australia called Oriana. Yes. I towed that from Sydney to Japan. She was dead and uh, couldn't go anywhere, so towing ships is actually quite easy, but the oil rigs are quite difficult. And um, the first yeah, one... If I just break in on the public, or my view of an oil rig is a great big metal thing. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you keep the thing afloat? How, well, no, no, they, they're designed to float, and we they'll move from location to location, and then they sink themselves down and start doing what they do best. But, yeah. But you tow them all around the world, and um, the first one I towed from the... We picked it up in a shipyard in um, in the inland sea in Japan, and then to tow it to Sakhalin, which is off the coast of Siberia, up in the ice. Brand new, $360 million. And it, the first day out of Japan, a bad storm hit, and um, it wasn't um, sustainable, and rolled over and sank. Oh, that one ended up more or less smacked up on the rocks, you know, which was a bit unfortunate, because <laughs> it was brand new. and um, Rolled over sideways. mm Mm-hmm. And then the next one was quite shortly after, really, it was another one called Key Biscayne. I was towing that from Darwin to Fremantle. That one actually, unbeknownst to us, and they never told us, started to down flood through some cracks in the hull. Okay. And then they abandoned it, had 53 people on board. They got some emergency helicopters and abandoned it off Carnarvon. They told you by this time that things were no, crook? not really. Things were pretty crook. Yeah. And then that one actually rolled over and sank at night. We didn't actually see it go. And that was a pretty much equivalent uh, value. But, you but you've got this thing on a cable or something? Mm, yeah, a 100mm tow wire, maybe a, nearly a mile long. You know. oh, I That's see. big, 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 big business. And that one had broken away a few times, so we used lots of rocket lines. And, you know, it's a, it's a big industry. Offshore towing is... Big stuff. What, what sort of uh, ship are you towing it with? With the, the offshore ships are designed to be multi-task. They can carry cargo. They can keep, they can do diving work, and they can okay. do also. And they also have very very heavy towing gear. You know. Right. Mm. That's why the job is so interesting. You know, it's always, yes. There's always something different. You know? Does any. Uh uh, no other way to say this. Any blame come back to the captain? No, who's of course, towing? they always loved to pass the buck, <laughs> but in each instance there were um, bigger fish to fry, you know. Right. The interesting thing was, though, that uh, the company, perhaps it's unwise to mention, but they always, you know, always dealt with a deal with a big law firm in Melbourne that look after their affairs. Mm-hmm. And after the first oil rig, I was called in to see the lawyers. Of course, they rubbed their hands gleefully because... 
they can drag this out for a year and make a lot of money. Yes. And um, and then within a very short period of time, I appear on the doorstep again with the, another one. Yes. Well, I was the man of the month. I was invited to the <laughs> Christmas party, and given a pen, and you know, I was I was a good milk cow for them. And then about ten years go by, and uh, I was working for Brambles, and had a whole. A lot of animals, unfortunately, die on the ship's big semi-trailer. Semi-trailer went over the side and some collapsed. And I ended up in Melbourne Magistrates Court. I was charged with 30, 37 counts of cruelty to animals as the master of the ship because these poor animals had suffered. Yeah. However, guess what? I went to the same law firm and when I walked in the door, <laughs> you could see the little piggy eyes and they were rubbing their head. Here he is. This guy's great. We make a lot of money out of him. I said, what have you lost this time? Expecting another $360 million oil rig. Yep. And I said, no, I lost a few cows, unfortunately. A few cows over the side. Mm. So we move on to that, from that to piracy. Piracy is good, yeah. I like piracy. <laughs> you like piracy. <laughs> <laughs> You've done well out of piracy. Well, yeah, not personally, yeah. but... Uh, yes, yes. Uh, no, no, pirates are... I'm, they're, I Tell me about the pirates. What? Who are these? Well, they're not they're under the under the guidelines of uh, UNCLAS, which is United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea. Mm. There is no such thing as a pirate. A pirate, by definition, is a stateless person. And if you think about, you know, pirates of the Caribbean and all these sort of people, they didn't, they weren't nationalised. They weren't American flag or British flag. They just removed themselves from society and they were stateless people. The people that are operating now as pirates it should be inverted commas because. They're still actually citizens of a country. They're citizens of Indonesia. They're citizens of Somali. They're citizens of Cameroon or West African countries. You know, so they're not yeah. really the real McCoy. Yes, they're, they're they're bandits and rogues and thieves and murderers. You know, but uh, I see. Really, yes. but we classify we call them pirates, but it's really a bit incorrect. Now they vary from in different parts of the world. In the Indonesian archipelago, they're mainly thieves. In the West African coast, they hold people for ransom. And in, in the Horn of Africa, they board a ship and they'll try to take the ship. In the China Sea, they take the ships for the fuel, take the fuel out of the ship and then abandon it. So they kind of, they're thieves and rogues of different sorts, you know. Now, all, all, all I got involved with is that uh, a lot of the big companies prefer not to put their own officers and crew on the ships for a whole range of reasons, mainly insurance, so they'll subcontract that out. So I got onto that and um, I used to deliver them for them, sometimes I go to the shipyard and do the sea trials for the new ship, no matter what it might be. Then you get familiar with it and then put a run crew on. And if they wish, sometimes they don't, but if they wish, you can hire people with guns, large well, I was going to say that Russians and Ukrainians. And <laughs> they get a thousand bucks a day, it's not bad cash. So probably better than the captain. <laughs> yeah, probably is. <laughs> and they, um, and then they, and then, the, and then they'll come for the run. So this always amazes me. A ship is a very big thing and the deck is a long way out of the water mm. and you see things on the news of the pirates are in little boats. How, mm. how can you take over oh, a great yeah. big ship, you know, when you've got a little airport no, no, on the not, back or whatever? Not that hard. And actually the Victorian police, I was watching a video just recently of watching them board a ship too. They, 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 first off, if they get alongside them, they can throw a grapnel up yeah. You're talking of fairly agile people. I mean, yes. they're pretty fit, so they yeah. can go hand over hand up a rope, no problem to a fit person. And then okay. when one person gets up there, they can pull a rope ladder up. Okay. You know, in the Malacca Straits, they've got a good technique there, whereas they, they'll have two boats with a, a rope stretched between the two of them, and then they'll 
an approaching ship will pick up the rope mm-hmm. and the boats will just stream along sides. Okay. They don't even have to run the engine. They'll come aboard, yeah. Victorian police have uh, some very sophisticated launchers, but they still they use a big uh, uh, rod with a hook. They wind a handle and goes up, puts the first rope on. They put a dinky little ladder. So you're very correct in but, so that they're, so it's a long way up. But I mean, uh, but I would have thought you're up above them, and but the problem is you're not armed necessarily. That's, very few, if any, merchant ships are armed there. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever been? Attacked by pirates? Had them, I've had them come on board, but I mean, they've, they've got rid of them pretty quick, but not not, not that frequently, no, no I can't say it's, it's like the Wild <laughs> no. West. What happens is, especially out of some of the shipyards, they network, the network is very strong, so they'll, the, the shipyard workers will get paid some sort of fee for, to advise the pirates of what might be going on, especially oh. in the Horn of Africa. So if they know that you've started to prepare the ship with razor wire and you're going to pick up some um, gunmen, they, they won't, generally won't come near. They know not to do that. Yes. Mm. yes. But, of course, the big problem, people say, well, why don't ships carry guns? Well, there's a lot of problems associated with guns when you enter into countries, yes. even if you have yeah, them under lock and key. Mm-hmm. And therein lies the problem with the shooters. I mean, Going in and out of India, you, it's the same as Australia. You can't turn up at Tullamarine with a sports bag with two AK-47s yeah. or 74s. And you, yeah. So you, in that case, we used to leave Cochin and go to Colombo off Sri Lanka and rendezvous excuse me, with a trawler and then bring the gear on. Mm-hmm. And then they'd usually I'd drop them off, off Algeria. If they wanted to keep the guns, we could do that. If they didn't want to keep the guns, we could drop them off anywhere. And they just chuck them in the sea. I mean, a gun's worth nothing. Like a machine gun that costs two hundred bucks. They're very cheap. I mean, right. unfortunately. Yeah. But um, so you'd better just to throw them over the side. We all have a go. They all. I'm not a gun person, but you know, so, um, we always have lots of balloons. And we blow the balloons up, and chuck them, <laughs> and all shoot away. And you know, it's, it's quite a curious good sport. Good sport. <laughs> Something to do. Yeah, yeah. And now, one thing you didn't mention at the start, um, but I know you've done is to Captain Sea Shepherd. Yep, yep, yep. Tell us a little bit about Sea Shepherd. It's pretty controversial. There there, there are a lot of professional seafarers, captains, chief engineers. Perhaps I'm just going to break in on you. Just tell the listeners what Sea Shepherd is. Sea Shepherd's um, Shepherd's an interesting thing. It was originally uh, Greenpeace was a a starting point and... uh, um, and there was a feeling amongst certain people that they weren't doing too much. They weren't very active. They were more or less flying a rainbow flag and putting a few stickers on things. And there mm-hmm. was a core of people who said, no, we've got to be a bit more active than this. You've actually got to do something. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the gentleman that, that started the move, he was he started off with Greenpeace and he fractured, fractured off to the side and started Sea Shepherd. Sea Shepherd are more militant and more active when it comes to conservation of marine life, yes. particularly whales and dolphins and porpoises like they slaughter in Japan. And so um, I, I was attracted to it because of one very important thing, I feel very strongly about the unnecessary slaughter of the whales in the Southern Ocean, which is part of our protectorate. And we, we were responsible for it in Australia. It's actually a sanctuary and the Japanese go in there and slaughter these things under the pretense of research, and yet the, all the product is sold on the fish market in, in Japan. You know? Yes. A minke whale, which is mm-hmm. a small whale, 
can generate the revenue of about eight hundred thousand US dollars, one minky. Eight hundred thousand. So the research yeah, is quite right. valuable and after you've finished putting it under the microscope, you can freeze the product down. So and I I just object to that. And I hope that I would love to see Sea Shepherd close and never have to do anything again because I think it's the responsibility of the government and the Navy to yes. look after our waterways. But mm. for some reason they don't. And the only people that go down there are volunteers who are, who are hairdressers and shoe salesmen and truck drivers who give their time and do this to help out, no mm. cost, pay their own way. I, I have the utmost respect for them. And they, they do a pretty good job. But a lot of people, there's a bit of criticism. They can be pretty radical and they do things, but... I only do what I wish to do. I feel pretty strong. I went to the Faroe Islands up near the Arctic because they slaughter the pilot whales there. They'll slaughter thousands of them just for fun. And yet they can't eat them because they're so full of heavy metals. The government has banned them from being... And my argument was, well, sure, I understand a rite of passage. You know, it's a thing that done traditionally. But why kill thousands of them and leave them lying on the beach? To me, it doesn't... It doesn't make sense, no. you know. So, and I do believe that they're a reasonably intelligent kind of animal. They're, they're proven to have some sort of uh, what's the word I'm seeking? They, 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 they they're aware. They're aware. Yeah. And um, and I don't think it's necessary to, to slaughter them like that. You know? The whales in the Southern Ocean. The, we have the Animal Planet Discovery Channel film crews on board and the guy showed me some footage, which is still shakes me even to this day, and that was a Japanese whaling factory ship starting to suck the whales up the stern ramp to chop them up, mm-hmm. all the dead whales floating around. They put a lance in and blow them up with air to keep them buoyant. And the Sea Shepherd ship, Steve Irwin, was there, and on the lee, on the lee side, on the off side of the ship, he walked over the camera and looked down into the sea and all the mother whales with the baby whales were hiding in the shadow of the Sea Shepherd ship because they knew all this blood in the water and the slaughter going on. Mm-hmm. And you look at all these mothers and their babies swimming around, hiding behind the ship, and you think there's some there's a good measure of intelligence and feeling there. That's when astounding, they do that. isn't it? Yeah. And things like that, when you see them firsthand, I haven't witnessed it myself, but many of the people on the ship say, once you look into the eye of a whale... You change. And I've heard the story so many times. Yes. I've never witnessed them myself. But they say there is some recognition. It's like looking into the eye of an intelligent dog. There's a, right. an awareness. Yes. Anyway, we're That's off. A... So I do that. They, they, they're very short of professional seafarers. A lot of Australian ship's captains and things drive the Sea Shepherd ships. Not only mm-hmm. And you get on there, they, the chief engineers and the captains are usually professional helicopter pilot, helicopter engineer, usually military people on leave. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they're like a sponge. They, they soak up the knowledge. So you go onto the bridge and there's some, somebody laying around, you know, combing their dreadlocks and things. And so oh. <laughs> so you, you, kick them, you kick them around a bit, shake the whole thing up, and, and, but they actually love it. They like to professionalise themselves. Yeah. So Did you have any incidents, let's say, while yeah, you Yeah, lots of incidents, yeah, probably very unwise to talk get about some. An but example, they, yeah. No, no, they ask you to do, they, they they do ask you to do, to take the ship into remote places mm-hmm. or places where there's no, they're known to be hostile. Up in the Faroes, which is all fjords, a bit like fjords in New Zealand, deep water fjords, 
lots of little ports up in the Arctic that time of the year. The sun's still in the sky at 10 o'clock at night. 10 o'clock at night is like daylight. And I took the ship into these very, very small places. The ship barely fitted without any charts. Just uh, very risky to do that on a sizable ship. Steve Irwin's a reasonable size little ship and put alongside the wharf and then uh, the hostile natives had come and and get a bit wound up and we'd fly the flag, put a bit of presence there, not necessarily go there to start a brawl or something, but just Mm. to wave the flag, show them what's going on. So it's done with purpose. It's done to be confrontational. Yeah. Sometimes confrontation is the best way to get your message across. Mm -hmm. Um, Bit of confrontation you get on the the telly. Sure thing. The one that I still... And I actually have a fondness for, for, for Japan and Japanese people. I love the place, love the people. But I don't enjoy the whaling aspect of it, and I don't enjoy the slaughter of the dolphins in Daji. You know, that's just a ghastly thing. So I, 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 I don't mind being confrontationalist when it comes to those sort of things. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing there may be people who listen to this or have um, some different views about it. I do find the people that have the most comment and the most critical about Sea Shepherd know very little about it. Yes. And I do encourage people to to have a look on the internet. If you're in Melbourne, go to Williamstown, that's their headquarters, and go and have a look around, go on board the ships. Can you do that? The, yeah, yeah, the public yeah. can go and uh, of course. board the ships? Yeah, they're yeah. open now. And you'll find, you know, people say they're full of hippies and bums and ships are, you know, all run down. They're, ship for, they're old ships. They're immaculate. The standard's very high. They run them very professionally. They're, yeah. they're maintained well. If people want to get involved with Sea Shepherd, how would they do that? Yeah, anyone can volunteer. They have a, a website. And anyone at all is welcome to volunteer and do a trip on the ship. Now, sometimes it might just mean a, there's some good trips they do from, say, Sydney to Melbourne to put the ship on display in Sydney. So anyone with no seafaring experience can go, and you might end up swinging on a mop or pulling on a rope. This, this um, podcast is mostly for senior people. There's uh, lots of senior people. Okay, yeah, so yeah. you can do that. As long as you can get around. Yes, yes. They make you very welcome. Everybody is welcome. And there are some people who are extremely passionate about it and can be in your face. And there are other people that are just like you and me, just have some sort of commitment to Belief. do something. Yeah. yeah. And you meet the most amazing. I've met people from all walks of life, including very, very professional people, all sorts of manner of highly trained, highly qualified people, even down the last time there was two sinister-looking guys sitting in the corner with full face tattoos, and yes. they were the genuine Hell's Angels from Oakland, California, okay. the real McCoy. Yes. I was so intrigued. And they, they were very, very um, um, passionate about it. I said, oh, no, man, you know, this is <laughs> not fair. I'll come and do it, you know. So, yeah, it's a, you meet some lovely, lovely people, yeah. That sounds like a good place to wind up because we've been going for a little while. You're probably, <laughs> you're probably um, going to be surprised with how long we've been talking. Uh, thank you very much for uh, giving some of your experiences. Pleasure. Pleasure. If people want to, if, if you think that Sea Shepherd might be something you want to get involved with, folks, uh, look it up on the net. I'll put the web address in the show notes. So there we go. Rob, you're living in a gorgeous place, a lovely sunny day today, folks, but you can imagine what it's like on board. It's not always like this, I imagine. No. <laughs> so thank you very much. That's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I might add one reason I live here is because it's a long way from the sea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Henry. I appreciate the time.
Once you heard, Rob is happy and he's comfortable telling stories about his days on the water. He was very laconic about pirates. He just said, oh, they boarded the ship. <laughs> Didn't go much further into that. And I missed the opportunity to, uh, to talk further about that because that sounds like a really scary thing to me. But he does get serious at one time. He gets serious towards the end when we're talking about the protection of sea mammals, of porpoises and whales. He gets, uh, you could feel the emotion coming through there. That's something I think which really is dear to his heart. He talks about Greenpeace and in particular Sea Shepherd having, having been the captain of the Sea Shepherd ship called the Steve Irwin and also uh, their other trimaran. There's a photo of it on the website. I think it's called a trimaran. Um, the name of which is Sea Shepherd, I believe. I didn't know that anybody could tour their ships. It's now, where are we? We're in May in 2016. Apparently um, the ships are berthed at Williamstown in Victoria, and you can go and have a look at them. You can go and tour the ships and see where they live, what they do, and talk to the folks who are there. If you're interested in Sea Shepherd, you can have a look at their website. It's Sea Shepherd, S-E-A-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, so Sea Shepherd, all one word, dot org, O-R-G. And they also have a Facebook page, Facebook page with over 200,000 likes. So obviously the people of Victoria and Australia are uh, very, very supportive. Now, if you go to the web page, you'll see that there's news there, there's ways to donate, there's a link to their bookshop, all sorts of uh, ways that you can support the defence of sea mammals. If you've had any experience with any of the activities of, uh, of either Greenpeace or Sea Shepherd, or in fact, if you don't agree with what they're doing, Leave us a little message in the reply box at the bottom of the webpage. Just go to Retired Excited, so retiredexcited.com, and find your way to episode 16. Or you can contact me directly, henry at retiredexcited.com. And uh, you could start a conversation, or you could be involved in a conversation about how Australia reacts. I guess that's the right way to say it, how Australia reacts to Japanese whaling and Japanese killing of dolphins. I think this has been a, a, a really, really good interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You could tell from the interview that I was enjoying myself. There was no alcohol involved. Leave us a comment. Keep well, keep happy. That's it for today. And I will see you next week. Bye then. I want to get that again. Um, Ian Roberts was terrific. That was interesting. interesting. What a good idea. Oh, wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. 
episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August, actually August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show. And when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to lead podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye!